Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Tonight, our study brings us to Revelation chapter 10, and we're looking at the second of three assurances that God gives His people. The first one was the Sovereign Lord. We saw it in verses 1 through 4. And now we shall see the sworn oath, beginning in verse 5. Then the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Here we have the sovereign Lord's sworn oath, or his promise. Now, believers of all ages have found comfort in their times of hardship and trial and tribulation through the promises of God. Next to God Himself, His Word will bring you comfort. His promises will be there to comfort you. And sometimes God, for some reason, may not reveal Himself to us in our affliction, but He will reveal His Word. And He will speak to us and give us a promise from His Word, and that promise will carry you through. Psalm 138.2 says, You have magnified your word according to all your name. Now what does that say about God's word? That He's magnified it according to all His name. Somebody. What does His name represent? His character. Who He is. And all His name, I would think, means His Full character. His different names will show you one aspect of his character. Now, whether it's Yahweh, who is and is and is to come, his eternality, or if it's uh, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, or uh, El Shaddai, God Almighty, showing his power. But here God says he's magnified his word according to all his name. God's word is magnified in His sight. <laughs> it is precious. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. You won't find anything else perfect in life, but the Word of God is perfect. Psalm uh, Isaiah 48, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Stone Mountain's going to be gone one day. But the Word of God's going to stand forever. You cannot be standing on any ground that is more solid, more lasting, than when you stand on the Word of God. When you stake your life on God's Word, you're standing on stable ground. 
God's promises are certain. When God gives His promise, it's as well as done. Hezekiah was sick. God told him to go and set his house in order. His days were numbered. And Hezekiah appealed to the Lord and asked the Lord to to give him more days. And God promised him that he would in three days heal him and he would live 15 years longer. And God gave Hezekiah a sign that this was true. You remember what that was? The shadow went up the steps. Opposite way now. I can only imagine what God did in His created solar system to cause the sun's shadow to go backwards. I mean, it boggles the mind to think of what astronomical things had to happen uh, for that to take place, but it did. And sure enough, three days later, Hezekiah was healed, and he lived 15 more years. It was through the promise of God that Jesus came. God made a promise to Eve over in Genesis 3, 15. And this promise was to tell her that he was going to send one. He said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. And between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this, many scholars believe, was actually the first gospel that God promised He would send His Son, born of woman, who would crush Satan, and in so doing, He Himself would suffer, His heel would be bruised. God always keeps His Word. Through the promises of God, we know we can be saved. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There is great assurance in the promises of God. And to these tribulation Christians, John is giving them the assurance of the promise that Jesus makes, the oath that He makes. Look in verse 5. Then the angel who, who I saw, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven. Now what's John telling us when he says, Jesus lifted up his right hand. What's he getting ready to do? He's not voting in a church conference, is he? He's making a promise. Making an oath. It was common gesture in biblical days to raise your hand when you made an oath. In fact, over in Genesis 14, Abram is making an oath to the king of Sodom. And the scripture says that he's... An oath was sworn to him, and literally the word sworn in the Greek means lifted up my hand. So when they lifted the hand, buddy, they were getting ready to make a promise. They were getting ready to make an oath. Now, we do the same thing in court, don't we? How many of you have been in court? And they said, raise your hand, right? Okay, the witness, raise your hand. All right, same thing's held today. Jesus then further assures the saints of his seriousness, not only by raising his hand, but he makes a solemn oath. Now, he could have just stated the promise, but he makes a solemn oath. In the Scriptures, an oath is the most serious statement, covenant, that a person can make. 
Now, you and I don't take our word that seriously today. But let me tell you, in biblical days, they took it serious because God took it seriously. Probably no story points out this truth of the seriousness of an oath as the story of the, a judge named Jephthah. You remember him? He was going to war against Ammon. And he said, God, if, if you will give me victory, I will promise that whatever comes out of my house first, when I get home, I'll offer as a burnt offering to you. And that was an oath he made. When he got home, first thing came out of his house was his only daughter. He was distraught because he knew his promise. He knew his oath. And he knew how serious the oath was. And so he kept his word. You remember when the Gibeonites tricked Joshua when the Israelites were going into the promised land? They made it look like they'd been traveling for many weeks. They let the beards grow. They got the old dirty clothes. They had molded bread and stuff with them. And so Joshua just assumed that they'd been traveling a long time. They said, make peace with us. Promise that you won't kill us and we'll serve you. Joshua didn't check with the Lord. He made that oath. Now, under false pretense, let me tell you, because they were tricking him. But he made that oath. 400 years later, David is king, and they're experiencing famine and drought in the land. And so David seeks the Lord. And the Lord said, this is happening because King Saul violated this oath that Joshua took, and he killed some of the Gibeonites 400 years later. And to make it right, David had to take seven of the sons of Saul, his descendants, and they were hung up to be seen by everyone in order to take the famine off the land. God took it seriously. They might have forgotten that oath, but God didn't forget, did He? God takes oath very seriously. Jesus said, Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is a throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of His feet. Don't make an oath, lest you not be able to fulfill it. Yet here, Jesus, being certain that He can fulfill His vow, swears by the greatest thing possible. He swears by Himself. Look. It says, And swore by Him who lives forever and ever. He swore by himself. God did, did this very same thing when he made the promises to Abraham to bless him and multiply his descendants. Hebrews 6 says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now notice what Jesus mentions, the attributes that he mentions when he makes his promise. First of all, he swore by him who lives forever and ever. Now, what do you think the significance of that phrase is? Why swear by Him who lives forever and ever? A little louder. 
right now, I can make you a promise, but I can pretty much assure you that promise is only going to be as good for as long as I live. Right? I mean, what's the most sacred human vow we have? Marriage. But even that doesn't go past death, does it? Because death do you part. And here Jesus says, the one making this promise, I'm the one who is eternal. Amen. So, he could easier die than fail to fulfill this vow. And it won't happen. You can count on it. He will live forever and ever. Secondly, he says the one who created all things. What does that tell us about him? How powerful he is. I mean, if he can create the universe, is there anything he cannot do? I don't see how it could be. And so he's saying, look, not only will I live forever, so you don't have to worry about death ever taking care of it, but I can promise you the moon because I can deliver. (laughs) Now, I can promise you anything, but I can't deliver, let me tell you. But here, the sovereign Lord who promises is the one who can deliver. And the one who lives forever and ever. This promise that he makes is certain. He will move the mountains to fulfill his promise to you. Everything is at his disposal. You know, we get so worried sometimes because we don't have enough money and yet he's promised to meet our needs. Don't we realize he can take money from the evil and give it to his people? It's just ink on a piece of paper. That's all. It's just a number of zeros at the end. (laughs) It's nothing to him, is it? All right, that's the one who promises. The one who lives forever and ever. The one who created all things. Now let's look at the promise itself. The oath. And we see it in verse 6. There will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is fulfilled as he preached to his servants, the prophets. There shall be no more delay. You remember we saw the martyred saints in chapter 6? You remember that when we saw the throne, we looked into heaven? You remember at the altar what they were crying out? Lord, how long do we have to wait to be avenged? How long? And they were told, wait a little longer. Well, now, Jesus is saying there will be no more delay. They want to know, why are you delaying avenging us, Lord? What is the purpose of all this delay? How long are we going to have to wait? And you know, this is the same thing that God's people say. say from ages to ages, right? When you're going through a hard time, what's the first thing you ask? Lord, how long do I have to go through this? Lord, when is this going to be over? When are you going to work on my behalf? When are you going to bring justice? You look at We look at this world and we see how bad it is and we say, God, why do you delay the Lord Jesus coming? Right? We see the crime, the corruption, sin abounds, heartache and misery, and we wonder what's God waiting on? 
Well, the tribulation saints will be thinking the same thing. But he says the mystery of God's delay is about to be finished. God's word to you and I is, in my time, I will work it out. Not your time, but my time. We need to leave the timetable in His hands. And our job is to trust Him, to obey Him in our hardship. The timetable of when we get relief is in His hands. And He'll bring relief when He's taught us a lesson He wants us to learn in the adversity, right? When He's revealed to us what He wants us to know and to learn and to trust, then He'll lift the pressure. God is saying to these tribulation saints that during the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, which includes the seven bowls, the final judgment of God on Babylon, the judgment on the Antichrist, the great war of Armageddon, Jesus' return, He says the mystery of God will be finished. Now let's talk about that phrase, the mystery of God is finished. First, this phrase, mystery of God, is used several times in Scripture. Now, mystery in the Scriptures is nothing like the way we use mystery today. We use mystery like I like to read mysteries. And I do like to read mysteries. And it's something that you don't know when you're working in and you're trying to figure it out. And finally, at the end of the book, the writer gives you the answer and you either have or have not worked out the mystery in your mind, the whodunit. Well, this is not at all what the Scripture means by the term mystery. What the Scripture means when it speaks of the mystery of God, it means the divine purposes of God that have not been understood in past times, but God is revealing them now. It's His divine purpose being revealed to mankind. Previously, they didn't understand it. But in God's time, He's begun to reveal it. And the mystery that He's talking about here, and in other places in Scripture, is God's redemptive plan that was first hidden in the mind of God and then revealed and made public through the prophets. Look over in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul mentions the mystery of God And he tells us exactly what it is. In Ephesians 3, beginning with verse 3. He says that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And then in verse 6, Paul says, now I want to tell you exactly what that mystery is. To be specific, here's the mystery, that the Gentiles, or fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, Paul says that for ages past, 
mankind did not understand that God was not only going to save His people, the Jews, but He was also going to include the Gentiles in His redemptive plan. And so Paul says, this is the mystery that is now being proclaimed that Jesus Christ died on the cross, His atoning blood is not only efficacious for the Jews who believe, but also for the Gentiles who believe. This mystery of God's redemptive plan was preached to the prophets of old and to the New Testament prophets. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 10. He says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. See, they knew something of it, but they didn't quite understand it all. So they were looking intently, trying to figure it out. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter says the Old Testament prophets knew something of this mystery, but they didn't quite understand it all. And they looked and they sought to understand it. They wanted to know what, who is this one? That God's going to use. But God has revealed it through Paul and through the other New Testament prophets that it's none other than Jesus Christ, God's Son slain for us, and He is using the Lord Jesus to carry forth His redemptive plan. Now this revelation enables us to endure situations because we know our Lord is working out His plan, His mystery. Jesus promises these tribulation saints that they're almost at the end of this redemptive plan that God's been carrying forth since Adam and Eve. Look at the word finished. When he says the mission of God is finished, this word finished is that word that means perfected. It means completed. It means to come to a directed conclusion, fulfilled, to reach its goal. See what he's saying? Now that we come to the end of human history, he says God is bringing His redemptive plan to fruition, to completion, to fulfillment. Now, if this truth can give the saints of the tribulation peace and comfort, how much more should it give you and I peace and comfort in our hard times? That God is working in and through that trial, that hard time, that adversity, that difficulty to complete His redemptive work in your life. What is that redemptive work? To make you into the image of Jesus. Romans 8, 28, 29, one of my 
favored promises, one that has carried me through difficult and hard times and will carry you through. And that is the mystery of God is carrying forth His plan. My God causes all things to work together for good. Right? God in His wisdom, in His grace, in His power, who is the eternal God, who is the God who created heaven and earth, He is able to bring good in every situation that comes into your life. My God causes all things to work together for good. That doesn't say causes all things in that sense of, of evil that comes in your life. You cause a lot of that. Other people cause a lot of it. God's sovereignly in control even then. But He in His wisdom has promised that He will take those things and He will work through them. God causes all things to work together for good. And that word good means to your benefit. To those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose, those who are believers, those who are Christians. Now, unbeliever can't claim this promise. But you as a part of God's redemptive plan as a Christian, you can claim this promise that God's going to use that to bring about benefit in your life, spiritual benefit, and he even defines what that is. For those who love him and call according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That good, that benefit, is using that hardship to make you like Christ, to break off all the Parts of your self-life that are not Christ-like. And the truth is it takes adversities to do that in us. If everything goes great, we tend to take confidence in ourselves, don't we? Somebody said you had to lay flat down to look up. Sometimes God will put us flat on our back so we'll look up. Amen? And we all can testify when we've grown the closest to the Lord and learned the most of His grace and mercy has been not in the great times, but in the hard times. The lilies grow in the valley, not on the mountaintop. And so the next time you find yourself in the valley, remember your sovereign Lord's sworn promise that He is fulfilling His mystery, His redemptive plan for your life, even in this hard situation. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that uh, You have given us those promises and they are so rich and they are so true and we can be comforted and strengthened no matter what we face as we hold on to Your promise. For all Your promises in Christ are yes and amen.